Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 29, we're discussing Excalibur number 28, the night they tore down the Gilded Lady, spotlighting Brian and Megan in a spot of merriment and destruction as a night out on the town turns real weird real fast. Excalibur number 28 was originally published in September 1990. The creative team is Terry Austin on writing, Colleen Doran on pencils, Brett Blevins on inks, Phil Felix on letters, and Terry Kavanaugh on editing. Excalibur. Is it true? Take it quickly! I'm so excited to talk to today's guest who knows lots about sex and gender and superheroes, which is useful to any conversation, but especially one where Megan becomes Brian's twin and a mermaid and a werewolf and dreams about blue boys bringing her champagne and roses. I will introduce our guest in a moment, but first, the regular roustabouts. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I do various things. You've heard the intro before. Most days I'm writing or talking somewhere, somehow, about sex and gender and comics and pop culture. I'm always on duty as Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and I'm ready to duck and cover after saying I actually sort of like this issue like maybe the discussion will talk me out of it I imagine we'll have feelings about Megan but it made me smile at moments and you can't take that away from me um Mav introduce our listeners to yourself once again Hello and welcome back to Box Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic <laughs> pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and that is the intro to my other show, not this one, because it's confusing because this feels like I'm doing a different book this week. Mm, <laughs> and, <that's laughs> um, so I figured a, a book that's about, you know, hanging out at a pub and drinking while you discuss stuff, which again is my other show. I'm very confused, but I'm happy to talk here. Uh, Anna, you'll be happy to know that I also don't hate this issue. Um, I, Yay! It may be my favorite Brian to date. Um, I just, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm saying that with, you know, hesitation, with caveats. As a fill-in issue, I don't hate this. I I think it's kind of fun in some ways. I um, I remember it fondly when I read it today I was, or yesterday. I was like, oh, yeah, it is that issue. That was... um. 
okay, that was that. This isn't so bad. <laughs> so, so um, I kind of I'm kind of looking forward to the to today too. But um, beyond that, I also host another show, um, Box Popcast. You could go listen to it. You'll get to hear that intro. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed your qualified praise, Mav. Thank you so much, um, Andrew. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. I'm Dr. J. Andrew Deman. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University. Um, I'm the project lead for the Claremont Run, which is a social media engaged big project on Chris Claremont's work. Um, and I don't hate this issue either. I, oh, good. I, there are things that I, I all complain about in terms of character consistency, <laughs> but I think it's doing a lot of things well. And I think it's doing stuff that we kind of needed to happen. I think we really need to see a Brian Megan date story. Um, so yeah, no, I, I think on the whole, this one was a, a really positive experience for me. I was trying to think of what the intro to our other podcast, Andrew, Three Panel Contrast is. And I honestly can't remember because every time we record yeah, it, we never forget what it is. It <laughs> <laughs> and I think every time we've recorded it, we've just been like, how do we open this again? I honestly don't remember. <laughs> just, we've been doing that podcast for like three years. We really should have that down. I listen now. to your other show. <laughs> Typically, you guys start with one of you actually um, doing a bit very, my show, my other show never starts with a bit. It usually starts exactly how I did here. Um, I do the bit on this. On your other show, you guys usually have some bit related to whatever you read, and you sort of, it's always one of you just sort of introducing the book. And I, I kind of shamelessly stole that for this show. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually Michael with the bits. Yeah. He's been the yeah, king Michael. of bits lately. Um, anyway, let's get to our lovely guest. So we are joined, as I mentioned, by a super exciting guest whose insight I'm super duper excited to have on this issue. The pod is delighted to welcome Dr. Esther Dadao. Welcome, Esther. Hi, thank you for having me. So we'll tell our listeners a little bit about you. Dr. Esther Dadao is an independent UK-based comic scholar who completed her PhD in 2018 at the Uni University of Leicester. She is the author of Hot Pants and Spandex Suits, Gender in American Superhero Comic Books, and the primary editor of Toxic Masculinity, Mapping the Monstrous in Our Heroes, both of which will be very useful to have a conversation about the issue that we're talking about today. So now, Esther, I know you know your comics and your superhero comics especially, but I don't think that you You've read Excalibur previously, am I correct? I have not. I came into this very new to the series. I, I, I listened to some of your podcasts and I did a little bit of reading around, but I had not read an actual issue until the one you sent me for this this episode. So it was a uh, brand brand new. <laughs> <laughs> did you have kind of any familiarity with like the Marvel UK line at all, kind of growing up? Um, so actually, like um, one of the first things that introduced me to superheroes was the '90s X Men series. Ah, um, we talked about that I'm, so much on the pod. Well. I feel like it was like a definitive moment for a lot of uh, uh, young people, like that Saturday morning uh, broadcast. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I got into the X Men, and then um, the other lineup on the on the the channel was stuff like the DC animated series, uh, Batman animated series, stuff like that. And that's kind of how I got into superheroes. And then I didn't start reading comics until I was doing my masters uh, at the University of Cardiff, and it kind of just snowballed. You know, you start with one series and then you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to open a box at my local, you know, at my mm -hmm. local shop and I'll get like a title or two. And then next thing you know, you're 15 titles deep and you got to make some cuts. 
<laughs> so uh yeah so I, I i have read some x-men and i've I've written on um storm from the x-men but excalibur itself remains brand brand new to me but you would be familiar at least with most of the characters that we have here or would brian and megan who are primarily the characters we just have in this book are they completely I, new to you um so they were com- in the sense that I, i've heard of um brian who is captain britain i think um and I've, I've kind of heard of him before and i had to do some deep wikipedia diving to to figure out who brian was um so they were more or less new to me and i've I've done a little bit of catching up i hope oh yeah Yeah. no problem we're not not expecting you to do that i think you'll have plenty of insight on what goes on here regardless (laughs) um can i I ask you a little well can i ask you a little bit more about about sort of superheroes because i i often like to ask people who study pop culture and study superheroes in particular and you know perhaps especially when they're women sometimes or anybody sort of coming at this genre that's not necessarily the intended primary audience of this genre like would Mm -hmm. you consider yourself a fan of the genre primarily or were you kind of interested in studying it for the things that the genre could kind of tell us about culture and society or is it a little bit of both i think for me it's a little bit of both like i certainly i started out as a fan in the sense that like i think it's very typical of superheroes they have certain qualities that are innate to superhero like they're super powerful they're self-sufficient they always know what's right and in that sense they're admirable right they're meant to be admirable they have qualities that we as a culture as a society admire in that sense i really enjoyed reading uh superheroes and then there came the realization that yeah all these qualities that we admire are very much masculine coded and that then kind of snowballed into a very academic interest so it kind of yeah it, it very much is a mixture of both for me personally um i have i, I really enjoy kind of the extremes of the genre because like as a genre has has a lot of subgenres and there's lots that people do with it which i think is very interesting but yeah it's, there's also very much like that academic angle like it's that whole you, you do something you love and then doing something you love becomes work yeah so i started out reading it for fun and now it's very much like i can't read a comic without thinking about it <laughs> it's like it's like a lens that i've put on and now i can't take it off yeah, I think we're all going to identify with that on this podcast for sure. We've all been there and are still there in many respects. I didn't read any superhero comics for over a year after I finished my dissertation. I just like was like, I can't do this anymore. But I've kind of fallen back into it now, although the way I read is a little <laughs> bit different, a little bit different and sort of less Spanish and unreserved as I used to be. It's definitely changed. I mostly but, um... identify with how Esther explained getting into comics like it's crack. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like you start with just a little, you just try a little of this, and then it's like somebody's like, hey, you want to try some Neil Gaiman, kid? You know, Alan Moore over here. Hey, hey, I got, got the good stuff for you. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're just, you're in too deep. You can't get out. But it's, I, it's I the comics that it's, it's the comics that do it themselves. It's the way that it's structured right now because they're like, oh yes, you want to know what happens? Well, you have to read this issue from this other series that's actually the finale of this storyline we've been doing. And I'm like, okay, so I'll, I'll read this this one issue from this other series. It's like, oh, but I'll pick up the next issue of this other series as well, because it was fun. And yeah, you just kind of snowball into this. I have 15 titles now in my inbox, and my, my, my wage does not support my habit. <laughs> yeah, it's very much a... <laughs> I can quit anytime I want to. <laughs> 
Yeah, I feel like we've talked about this on the podcast once before about the ways that we read comics. And, you know, I've got so many memories of when I was first getting into a lot of comics, I did most of my reading on my computer. I had the pull list at the comic book store too for the new stuff. But when I was reading old stuff, it would have been on my computer. I have like these memories of reading every issue of Avengers just being locked in my room with like my laptop on my lap, just <laughs> going through issues and just getting to this point where I hadn't like eaten in like six hours and yet I'm still reading comics. And I'm just like, but I really want to see what happens to Vision and Wanda and like what's gonna happen and then they broke up and they're getting back I'll just read three more just three more and then I'll just I'll stop then and it really is addictive like it's yep. and those are like comics from the 1970s and I'm like there trapped in my room on my laptop trying to get through them all I feel like the 80s ones especially have like such a kind of um soap opera feel to them you're kind of like I just need to know what happens next just give me the next one I definitely had that experience reading Claremont X-Men as well I went through it all sure. so quickly the first time um, anyway, yeah. let's get into this specific issue and and apply some of your knowledge on sex and gender and superheroes to the story that we have on hand. So we'll do our issue summary first. Sorry, I'm eating a Hot Lips candy. I probably need to finish doing that before I talk for a minute. <laughs> All right, so we know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with us week after week. Thank you so very much. We love you so much, but still going to do that plot summary. Excalibur number 28 opens with Brian and Megan sneaking out of the lighthouse after dark in pursuit of a night out on the town. After some flirty aerial fighting, they arrive in London where they throw trench coats over their costumes and enter a pub called, you guessed it, the Gilded Lady. This is apparently an old drinking hole of Brian's. It's been sold to an American developer and is set to be demolished. Brian and the rest of the crowd are there to say goodbye. For all of a few minutes, things are fine. Then an inevitable conflict brews as the other drinkers at the pub are displeased with Brian ordering a lemonade instead of a pint. He avoids getting in a fight when Megan morphs into his twin brother and downs a pint in his stead. The other patrons are so touched by this display of brotherly affection that they back off. Until some new patrons arrive in the form of a platinum blonde in a miniskirt called Cooter and her cousin, the aptly named Bash. Cooter and Bash claim to have discovered gold in the north of England and are selling it cheaply. However, one man, too honest to be deceived, sees through the duo's scam. The gold nuggets are simply rocks. Cooter has the mutant ability to amplify greed, making people see what they want to see. Megan is similarly too honest to be affected by Cooter's powers, while Brian is too unimaginative. But Megan <laughs> is feeling the effects of the lager she consumed, and Brian is soon feeling the effects of Bash's considerably powerful punches. Things get very destructive very quickly, while Brian and Bash continue to bash each other. Cooter attempts to escape by convincing the bar patrons that Megan is a mermaid, causing her to change into a mermaid. Megan fights back and becomes a wolf girl which makes all the bar patrons flee in terror in the final effort to distract megan cooter makes her see what she desires most first she sees brian in a velvet robe holding roses and champagne then she sees kurt in the same scenario but the illusion doesn't last megan regains control and helps brian finally knock out bash for good everyone just manages to escape the pub before it collapses for good megan and brian leave cooter and bash to the police but the duo quickly escape heading cooter says for america i had to say cooter so many times in that summary and it's <laughs> starting to sound really weird and anyway uh moving on so as i said i kind of enjoy this issue but that shouldn't prevent us from finding things to criticize which i'm sure that we will but esther guest privilege jumping into excalibur on a very unusual issue of excalibur and yet it's kind of a standalone issue so maybe it's not too bad but i'm interested to know what you thought of it what were your first impressions do you have any rants or raves you want to open with uh, n not necessarily a rant or rave, but um, it, it feels like a lot of old comics of that time feel like. So like back when they still did like fun filler issues, when it's just the characters hanging out and they're having fun. Uh, in my in, in the way that I've read the last my um the most recent comics is that 
they feel a lot more action or plot driven and there's less space for this kind of nonsensical hammy plotless fun times um so it's a little cheesy but it's it's genuinely interesting and i think a lot of fun parts happen especially around megan the shift the shapeshifter because she shifts into various creatures and there's a lot of you know desire sexual or otherwise that is invoked through that shape-shifting so that's and also like yeah that the little pop-up of kurt is always nice and um, <laughs> to see a bit of uh, a bit of nightcrawler i know he's Our a particular t- favorite of yours Anne, but uh he is he, he is very nice well, is, he a particular, is he a wow is he a favorite of yours too then i'm assuming uh, it's one of those things where i've not i've never read um as much as i as as i like of him because i've not, not not done a deep dive into x-men comics but like I, I find that every single time he pops up something interesting happens so like in in my book toxic masculinity richard reynolds has a chapter on um Emma Frost and Kurt makes an appearance in that as well and like the little exchange that he writes about between Emma and Kurt made me actually go and look up the the issue for it so I feel like whenever Kurt makes an appearance interesting stuff is going down and yeah they draw him they draw him to be sexy that's what they do they trick you (laughs) well I was I almost wanted to I'm sad that we don't have more Kurt in this issue because I think he'd be a really interesting character to talk about in terms of the research that you've done on masculinity and you know how you read that character I'd be really interested but maybe we'll have to have you back again to talk about a Kurt issue maybe that would be that would be fun I hope (laughs) for the (laughs) the listener at least (laughs) I have to say too that I know the Richard Reynolds chapter you're talking about because I've read the book and I'm Ah. quoted in that chapter in a way that made me feel really famous which is that I had an email exchange with Richard about Emma Frost and he quoted the email exchange like with my permission but I wasn't like totally sure that it was going to be in the chapter and then I was like this makes me sound super famous that like I wasn't it wasn't even something I wrote it's just my thoughts are so great that an email exchange with me can just be <laughs> cited in an academic book chapter it was like very like famous well, it was very insightful it had to be included <laughs> yeah, it's just a font of wisdom I love this idea though that we can just say things in email and that can be good enough I mean I want to get to that level as a scholar <laughs> yeah I mean, you have gotten to that level as a scholar. I don't know well, yeah, you're... apparently. I mean, just I don't know that that'll happen again anytime soon, but let's celebrate this one time that it did happen. Um, other first impressions before we get into some some uh, deeper dive stuff? Um, so I think like the, the bit that really kind of sticks out to me, to me is when Megan transforms into Brian's twin brother. Yep. Like that is so, that's interesting. I mean, the whole, the, the absolute outrage at a man ordering a lemonade is one thing. Mm-hmm. But then the whole transforming into the twin brother and it's seemingly not phasing Brian at all. Uh, yes. That's that's and I'm just like, have, have you done this before in private? Uh, it's kind of the the implication there almost. So oh, yeah, Esther, so you're speaking my things. language. I'm so excited about that scene <laughs> for exactly the same reasons. Um, other first impressions from Andrew and Matt before we, because I definitely want to talk about that moment more specifically. Yep. I mean, I, I, I agree with most of what you said. I like this issue. My first impression is uh, this is a very important issue to read because it gives you, Andrew, you said you, you think that um, 
we needed an issue of Brian and Megan on a date, and I think we do. I still don't love their relationship. I'm not going to love their relationship. But if you're going to write a story about someone who is essentially a battered woman, you know, there's always a, but he's so nice when, you know, when we're alone. This is him being nice when they're alone. And it's he's not a perfect boyfriend, but I at least, um, there's so much of Excalibur where you wonder, why is she putting up with this idiot? Why is she there? Why is she there? This gives you a reason to say, okay, I at least understand why she sees anything in him because there are there are positives you know from her mind about brian he's still got a fragile ego he's still not great but you know there are positives <laughs> about him and then i do also want to talk about the you know the utter gall of ordering a non-alcoholic drink in a bar for the first apparently this pub has never seen anybody order a lemonade before in the many many years that it's open like <laughs> <laughs> how dare he how dare he order a lemonade I mean, I feel I feel the need to like defend British pubs on on my side because because I'm in Britain at the moment and like like I want to reassure all our non-British readers you won't be assaulted in a pub if you <laughs> order a lemonade. Good to know. Yeah, I've, I've been to one. They're 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 typically I've been to several. They're typically very nice. <laughs> People are lovely. <laughs> I don't know. Andrew, any first impressions you want to offer before we get into it? Uh, yeah, just to expand on what Matt was saying, I think. So yeah, as I said, I, I think we do need this scene. And I think we especially need this moment if we're going to continue to, to sort of tease out this romantic triangle. Um, because again, it's become pretty increasingly clear that she should just be with Kurt. Um, so seeing this is good. To me, though, where it falls a little flat is in that Megan is not Megan. She's lost her ingenue status. And I think all these assertions of her agency and power that we see in this issue would hit so much harder if she still had her usual character voice. Like, I don't want to take her power away from her or complain that this character is being given power. I, I just think the way that she seizes power would be much more effective if she was more consistent with the earlier iteration of her character. Yeah, I could see that. And yeah, we'll talk about, let's talk about that a little bit more specifically when we get to some of the shape changing stuff with her, because I want to start with talking about Brian and bring sort of Esther's specialty in toxic masculinity into this conversation and a number of the things that you already mentioned, Esther, but sort of we'll get into them more specifically and more in depth. So obviously, as I mentioned in your bio, you're the lead editor of a book about toxic masculinity, which is excellent, which I've read. There's some great X-Men content in there. And here in this comic, we have one Brian Braddock, who I know you haven't read all of the rest of the series. Series, but as we've kind of been mentioning here, Brian very much set up as a damaged man in a lot of ways, but also reacting to life with a strong presence of toxic masculinity. The relationship with Megan has been quite strongly telegraphed as at least an emotionally abusive relationship in a lot of ways. And then here in this issue, we get this spotlight of Brian and Megan. And as we've been saying, you know, a spotlight on what she sees in Brian and seeing Brian kind of reckoning with his masculinity, which is really interesting. And we hadn't We've seen glimpses of that before, and we've talked about that before, but I think this is the strongest focus that we've had on it so far. So I wanted to ask you, Esther, like, are you able to tell us a little bit about the relationship between toxic masculinity and superheroes, like in a general sense? Like, what does toxic masculinity itself mean? And what are the ways that it commonly plays out in superhero comics? Um, so toxic masculinity um, is a term that refers to the kind of masculinity that takes those 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 traits that we consider in our culture to be masculine to their extreme and how eventually that 
harms men themselves or drives them to harm others in their environment. So superheroes are often wrapped up in toxic masculinity, right? Superhero stories are all about the hero who can stand alone, take care of business. Superhero stories tend to exaggerate those qualities that our culture pushes as being fundamental to masculinity, physical strength, the ability to engage in violence when necessary, self-reliance, stoicism, setting aside personal feelings to do what is right. So when taken to their like ultimate, most logical conclusion, those are traits that can be extremely toxic to yourself, to your environment. Like for, for a really basic example, the idea that softness and gentle feelings aren't manly often results in an inability to express emotions. The inability to express emotions often leads to an inability to then process negative emotions like sadness, grief, etc., because boys don't cry. The idealization of masculine self-reliance then also prevents men from seeking professional help like therapy when their emotions become overwhelming. And this in turn then leads to a breakdown in interpersonal relationships and can lead to suicide, which is why male suicide numbers are often higher than women. So that's like an extremely simplified thing of like an example of toxic masculinity and how toxic masculinity is about the extremes of masculine traits becoming toxic. The extreme rejection of anything that is seen as unmanly can lead to, you know, a real denial of your humanity. To take this back to superheroes, um, we often find that superheroes push a narrative that the hero can always be self-reliant and strong and powerful. And in that way, toxic masculinity is almost inevitably a part of the superhero narrative. It is possible to present a superhero who has a support network, who struggles with their emotions, who gets, you know, professional help. It's just that when those elements come into the story, they are very rarely about male superheroes. So we find that male superheroes push narratives where they don't struggle with their emotions. They idealize violence as the way to get the answer. Um, there's also the fact that they're often considered to be like the arbiter of truth and justice. You know, they are the, the man who's going to come in and fix everything. And they are placed on a higher social hierarchy than any of their supporting characters who might be, you know, women or... Um, women of color or men of color, but it's it's the straight white, male, straight white male that we find at the very top of the social hierarchy in superhero comic books very often. Not always, but like consistently. Um, so that's kind of how toxic masculinity is very embedded in superhero comic books. I mean, do you think like the fact that this is a genre that deals explicitly with bodies and conflict is sort of part of why toxic masculinity is so often bound up in this genre? I mean, the superhero genre gets criticized for reducing complex problems to people punching each other. I mean, is that part of why toxic masculinity is such a pervasive problem in this genre? Is it because it's so difficult to get away from that baseline fact that superhero comics solve problems with violence? Oh, yeah, that's that's like you've, you've really hit the nail on the head there in the sense that the the, the punch-up is why we read the comics, right? The fight, the inevitable physical showdown. And superhero bodies have these, you know, insane musculature, this insane body that's just not physically feasible. And when you see that translated to the screen, you know, you see these super these these superstars, these uh, actors who like take a year off just to bulk up for the single movie, and it's it's an absolute insane demand on the body, and it's actually the, creating this new idea of what a masculine body looks like, um, very much in line with like um, the '80s bodybuilding superheroes, so like Schwarzenegger and and people like that, and this idea that this is what a man looks like, and you can um, that like if if you 
check on studies, there's a huge rise in um, body dysmorphia and eating disorders and steroid abuse amongst young men who feel like they have to meet this insane ideal that no regular person can maintain without steroids. So it has a direct impact on, on, on young people, um, this kind of physicalness to comics and by extension, the films that they're based on. Well, yeah, and I mean, them. yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, when people have sort of criticized that sort of culture of toxic masculinity around superheroes, they pointed out the fact that a lot of bodybuilders and like, you know, particularly in the 80s and 90s, when kind of the extreme artwork was very much pushing those narratives, we're seeing some diversification in the superhero genre now, although, as you said, it's shifting to the films, which can, which can be even even worse in some ways, because they have a larger audience. But, um, but definitely the fact that a lot of bodybuilders cited they wanted to look like a comic book. And yeah. that was like, partly what led them to kind of pursue more and more extreme methods and so that's always fascinated me because they're directly pursuing an impossible body i mean it's a drawn body it's a body that you can't imitate and yet the fantasy is so powerful that you want to still resemble that body and part of that is because the fantasy is everywhere so i don't know if you've ever read the adonis complex um, i have read it is, yeah. oh it's so good so like and it, I quote it extensively in my own work, uh, in, in my own book, Hot Pants and um, Spandex Suits, but especially like the bit where they talk about how um, even something as simple as the action figures that are sold based on films and comics and whatever, like their proportions have changed massively. So if you were to compare a Luke Skywalker uh, action figure from like the early 1970s to one in the early 1980s, like the chest has expanded massively. Um, so it's, 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 some, it's one of these things that is just, everywhere in cartoons in comics um action figures films like it's almost impossible to escape now this kind of hyper masculine hyper muscular body that's just isn't possible to obtain without you know having your own personal trainer and your own personal chef and your own personal access to steroids you know yeah and i mean it's been so interesting as the marvel cinematic universe in particular has sort of recruited less than traditional action heroes for some of its roles and then they always end up with the same bulked up body and those transformations get celebrated and talked about in a certain way which is very interesting mm -hmm. very much so but let me ask you to relate some of that to the depiction of brian in this issue you already brought up him ordering the lemonade and being uh. severely punished for that choice how do you see sort of themes of toxic toxic masculinity surfaced in this particular story I, so I don't know a lot about Ryan. So like, I don't obviously don't know him as the uh, emotionally abusive. Um, yeah, you just, just base it active. on this issue. Fine. Yeah, but like just based on the issue, it feels kind of sorry. I feel kind of sorry for him because he genuinely feels like a man in crisis. Who And, and, it, and it is that kind of like the, the crisis of toxic masculinity, which is that we live in a culture where men are consistently pushed to prove that they're manly enough. And there's a constant moral panic about how men aren't manly enough. And like, oh, children today are too soft or too coddled and how this kind of results in a soft masculinity. And so Brian's masculine crisis feels very much like has echoes of that. So like the whole, he has to order a lemonade and he feels ashamed, or at least it feels like he's ashamed of having to do that. And the completely disproportionate reaction of the <laughs> of the bar crowd and yet at the same time I'm, I'm sure that a lot of people who are not drinking like recognize the kind of social pressure um to drink so it's kind of not just the fact that he has to order the lemonade it's the whole the issue of he's not masculine enough to be self-controlled enough 
to be able to order a drink and have it be just the one drink and this kind of constant fear about that because then at several points later at the later point of the issue when the when the brawl is happening uh, Megan she knocks out Bash and then pretends that Brian did it so we find oh. Megan being very much aware of the fact that Brian is in a crisis of masculinity or that he's feeling self-conscious and she's trying to cater to that feeling, trying to mitigate the the feelings of shame and anger associated with that with that crisis. And that's like a really interesting thing to me um, as, as a scholar, this kind of his crisis puts pressure on her to make him feel like a man. Yeah, and then her powers are so fascinating on that level. So not only is she a shapeshifter, she is an empathic shapeshifter. So she shapeshifts in response to the emotions of the people around her, which is really fascinating and often doesn't get used as interestingly as it could, but it's a fascinating element if we read that into what goes on here. I mean, maybe I'll open this up to Andrew and Mav because obviously you have the larger context for Brian as well to talk about what are some of the ways that Brian's masculinity is kind of challenged or interrogated here because I definitely think it's the strength of this issue. I think one of the beautiful things comes early on where um, Brian considers himself sort of of this culture and of these people mm -hmm. uh, and he gets called out really quickly quickly on it in the narrative. There's a level of self-awareness there. Um, so Austin sets up this gentrification narrative uh, and, and Brian, who is, he has every privilege imaginable, uh, walks in there and, and thinks he's going to be welcomed like he's Norm from Cheers and they literally don't know who he is. Uh, and, and they hate him. They just absolutely hate him. Um, and I kind of really like that because it speaks to Brian's um, lack of self-awareness which I do think is an important aspect of his masculinity and some of the things that make him toxic towards Megan. It can also be something that makes him a little bit sympathetic too, though, right? I mean, his patheticness here, I think, becomes sympathetic <laughs> because he's just so ignorant of his own place in this world. Yeah, I mean, maybe sure. there's there's multiple ways of reading that. You might not read that sympathetically, but to me, I read that a little bit sympathetically here. The fish out of water story, as it were. Um, Mav, did you have thoughts on that about the yeah, version I... of Brian we see here? I absolutely think it's sympathetic. It's it's this is again the most I've liked Brian in this book up until this point because of understanding him. The, Esther points out the fragility at the end of Megan knows that Brian is broken. Megan has figured out that he's broken enough to say, "Yes, honey, you knocked out the guy. Go you." Right? Like that was <laughs> like I appreciate that moment, but also this the fact that Brian orders a lemonade and had has thoughts about it. Mm -hmm. This is the first time Brian has ever acknowledged his drinking yep. problem. Yep. We have acknowledged his drinking problem. <laughs> Kurt, Kitty, and Rachel have acknowledged his drinking problem. <laughs> Brian has never acknowledged his drinking problem before. And this is, um, you know, we talked about on previous episodes, we've talked about the weirdness of how fill-in issues work. This is the fill-in issue where Austin has been given the, the very important job of telling us, the reader, that Brian is working on himself. And that, you know, like, do I think he's perfect? No, but... I think I need to know that Brian is working on himself. Brian, a man who can be abusive, a man who's having an affair, a man who's got many uh, issue of um, of inadequacy on his own, of personal trauma over his sister dying. Suicidal um, ideation. Su yeah, su yeah, all these stuff. Brian is aware that he has problems and he is working on it. And that matters so much in this book. Um, and it's acknowledged in it's acknowledged in several ways to talk about the toxic mas masculinity because this is the person Brian is. Brian doesn't know how 
how to work on himself. Yeah. He's trying, but the fact that no one recognizes him hurts him. If he wanted to be recognized, he's Captain Britain. He's the national superhero. He could just take off the trench coat and they and they would be like, oh my God, you're Captain Britain. He is that recognizable. But he he's hurt that he's not being recognized as Brian Braddock. Because and it's a well, performance for Megan too, right? Bringing right. her there, expecting him to be welcome right. like that. This is the place I hung out at in college 15 years ago. You know, like I don't think, <laughs> or, you know, if, if I went to my college bar, I don't think they'd recognize, well, it's not there anymore, but like they wouldn't just recognize me either because that, because time moves on and it's a college bar and you've got how many hundreds or thousands of students <laughs> coming in every year. You've been gone for, you know, Brian's a man in his 30s. You've You've been out of college for a while. So, like, I mean, we know he's gone to grad school. Like, he's, it's been some time, dude. So, so I get it. But I also get that he needs this. You know, we've talked before about how he doesn't know his place on, on the team because he's not the powerhouse. You know, Megan and, and Rachel are both more powerful than he is. He's not the brain because Kitty is smarter than he is. He's not the leader because that's Kurt. Although they Brian pretend is, that he's the leader sometimes. Yeah. So, so Brian's got this fragile place. And he's starting to figure it out. This to me feels like a man who knows, I don't know who I am anymore. Let me just go home again. Let me go home. And then you go home and home's not there for you. Yeah. I mean, it's also the two sides of the coin, right? If like your alter ego is the hyper-masculine Captain Britain, but that's a costume you put on. Surely you have to find some way to prove to yourself that the, the real man, in quotation marks, is, is still also like a real man. Mm -hmm. um, in, in that sense. So it's like a, a desire to prove that I, I belong amongst the real men of the world, these, you know, rough working class types. And then the barman doesn't remember him and immediately clocks him and calls him like a, a, an upper class um, <laughs> punks. So it's that kind of this need to be like, oh, but me, the ordinary man is also actually a Superman. Mm -hmm. I just need <laughs> you to see that side of me. And he is an upper class putz, by the way. Um, like, like, I mean, aside from be aside from being Captain Britain, you know, he's a trust fund baby. He's not, you know, oh, so like, no. so like I, I expect, you know, when Brian was 19, 20 years old and hanging out at this pub and everyone was nice to him and he thought he was just one of the guys. No, you were the rich dude. So they were nice to you. And he doesn't know that. This is Brian figuring that out. Uh, this is like a dude with an upper class accent trying to visit the deep north where just him opening his mouth projects immediately who he is. They all know. <laughs> I was thinking of him like the guy who's in college who's buying all the drinks for everybody because he's loaded but was also probably like blackout drunk the entire time so yeah his memory of these deep friendships is probably quite illusory. I like what you're saying Esther about the dichotomy because we don't have secret identity stuff going on in Excalibur very much. Most of these characters don't really have a secret identity dynamic. Kurt's not even using the image inducer anymore. I mean he puts himself in hats and scarves to kind of go out and try to disguise himself and some really fly sunglasses um anyway but brian does i believe technically still have a secret identity some people know who he is but i don't think it's popularly known that brian braddock is captain britain am i correct there's never been a point in the narrative where they've said oh by the way everybody now knows he he's yeah. never come out die thomas die thomas knows but, yeah. yeah but like so the cops know but like he's never had an official you know brian braddock the person is a wealthy businessman and it's never been there's never been that tony stark i am iron man moment that from the movie mm -hmm. like he's just as far as anybody knows they're different people the, it's really interesting then that they kind of play with like a reverse secret identity in this one because they're because they're supposedly in disguises so they can pass mm -hmm. amongst the common people um <laughs> 
<laughs> so yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting that in this like in, in this issue that's all about like the vulnerability of seeing them in private, the two of them together, they're also in disguise and hiding who they are. They're in trench coats. I mean, yeah, I mean, disguise, but yes. Okay, it's, it's it's like that. Is it which series is it from? Where they say, oh, you know, oh, it's from uh, it's it's from the Ant Man movie. Oh yeah, like basketball. Um, a basketball cap and sunglasses we look like us at a baseball game (laughs) (laughs) the secret identity works does work interestingly for brian because he's got that one where i mean i guess it would be the most similar to kind of like a batman bruce wayne thing in the sense that his secret identity is as a rich dilettante and yet he's also ostensibly a scientist so anyway but that never comes up as often as it predictably should but um but i'm very interested in the way we're getting some callbacks to his discomfort with his masculinity as spectacle and it gets us back to the new york villain issue that we had um excalibur's new york adventure where he's going around in the gym togs on the street and he's such an alike a feminized erotic spectacle in some ways, although very much through his masculinity because it's his enormous muscles and everything that are attracting attention, but just how deeply uncomfortable he is with becoming that type of spectacle. And we see him here in the bar looking very pretty with his blonde hair and they come right over his, to his table and call him a sissy, right? So there's like a gender, there's a gender component there that's really interesting where he's not performing masculinity properly when he's in his Brian Braddock identity and that should be a very hyper-masculine identity identity and yet it's often identified as feminized in certain ways and i find that really interesting it's not a performance that he's peddling not like bruce wayne purposely being a bit yeah, like, yeah. the way that he described it as foppish to kind of throw people off the scent um it's very much like just almost a, an impression that's enforced on him that makes him question his masculinity like he's too pretty to be a man yeah and i mean that's very like sort of true to the way that marvel often reduced like um whatchamacallit um reverses the secret identity uh trope in the sense that the superhero is the performance and the human identity is the real identity because i think that's sort of what we're getting a suggestion of here with brian that the captain britain identity is the like hyper masculine like identity that he is required to put on and we see his discomfort with that in his in the brian identity but we also see discomfort with masculinity in the brian identity so i really think it's great how we do see these kind of different types and layers of masculinity mm-hmm. playing out through this character and interacting in some really interesting ways and none of them uh, work for him yeah like he, yeah he, exactly he cannot be okay like because he, he doesn't i don't think he knows what he wants i mean you you touched on it very briefly but in his heart he's a nerdy scientist and you said it's not brought up as much as it should no I mean, not just to the narrative no one cares no one yeah. cares that you're smart <laughs> like his, his friends do not care about the one thing that he's good at like uh, like because because they know somebody way smarter so like yeah. the most the most exceptional things about him they know someone smarter they know someone stronger like everything that's exceptional about him is just extra and everybody's like oh okay brian's over there yay he could be the could could he be the prettiest one if if his if his desire to be hyper masculine didn't get in the way is that could that be his defining characteristic pretty sure Anne's gonna tell you that nightcrawler's got that title that's so (laughs) true it's an apples and oranges debate though No, I mean, I think it matters. Like, I think he's, I think he is the most conventionally pretty person in a group of people who do not, con- who do not at all care about conventional attra- attractiveness, right? Mm. It would be like, look, I'm Brad Pitt and I'm hanging out with a bunch of like, you know, alternative goths. Everybody's going to be like, <laughs> oh, what's with the blonde dude with muscles? Why, you know, you know, like, yeah. and that's, that's who he is, right? He's this absolutely gorgeous specimen of manhood 
in a world where you know all of his he's, friends are like it's cool to be blue <laughs> you know he's a, yeah yeah he, he's the square peg in the round hole he's, yeah. a, he's literally a square yeah it's, it's so funny because like not so he has two performances of masculinity available to him but neither of them he's comfortable or at home in right. and when he's like himself there's an al- he's, he's he's feminized through through the blonde hair in this particular issue through the lemonade um he he, he doesn't pull through at the end of the issue he's not it's megan who really cleans house he just kind of tries very hard adding to what esther was saying one of the reasons why he has his affair in the first place is because he feels he can be himself around courtney and nowhere else and also i mean like he's aware of captain america he knows that he doesn't have that kind of respect too like literally every aspect of his life is just like sort of a oh okay also you like he's he's never quite enough his sister was cooler than him right like his twin sister is like you know oh you are a superhero and this would matter except your twin sister is a more famous x-man everything about him just like it's never quite enough you know he's he's surrounded by gucci but he's walmart basically he's not he's surrounded by gucci he's banana republic right like he's the, <laughs> yeah i was gonna say i was like yeah. he's like brooks brothers or something yeah, but yeah. like yeah. square but like nice but square yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, let's talk about Megan because talking about them in relation to each other and I think some of what she does in this issue is going to be at least as interesting, if not more interesting than talking about Brian. I mean, just one other thing I just wanted to highlight as we sort of transition between the two is how much of what we're talking about highlights what Esther talked about at the top in terms of the trap of toxic masculinity and how even though Brian is experimenting with different masculinities out of necessity, none of them like arrive at a positive place and you can see how trapped he is in this particular issue and i just thought that was really interesting in terms of you know how to break out of that cycle and this is showing how hard it is to break out of that cycle because if he tries to not be that guy he gets punished by the other men around him we see those messages reinforced through the ways that his body and his behavior are both policed here and i just thought that was interesting to highlight but um okay So let's talk about Megan, and I'll give, again, Esther the first shot at talking about it. Obviously, the shape-shifting here is really interesting. You already highlighted the fact that she shifts into Brian, and I want to spend as much time on that as we want, because I think it's super, super interesting. I think the mermaid transformation is super, super interesting as well. We should talk about the sexual connotations of that. But um, basically, I'll just give you a first crack at it, Esther. You already said some of what you thought was interesting about Megan's shape-shifting, but I'll let you sound off on it a little bit more. What particularly intrigued you about this? I like shapeshifters in general, like shapeshifters are just a fascinating thing. And I talk about them a little bit in my book um, in relation to Teddy from the Young Avengers, who's also a shapeshifter. And the shapeshifting body is always in flux. So there's a lot of like, like, I don't want to, I don't want to use the word discourse, but yeah, there's a lot of discourse around shapeshifters and can they ever truly be one gender? Because if you can inhabit all genders. So the gender identity of shapeshifters is always kind of like in question just because of the of, of the narrative around them they can be anything they want and yeah okay they choose to be usually male or usually female in their private lives but they can shift and it's that blurring of the boundaries that kind of gives them a little i guess it, it makes them spicy it makes them spicy interesting characters so megan is just like a really interesting character just from that from that ability and she very clearly like inhabits it so comfortably because yeah she changes into brian's twin brother without any anxiety about what that might mean for her or her gender identity she's like yes i'm a dude now and i'm beautiful and blonde and look at me i'm going to give a massive toast like the way that they drew him with the little stars around megan to show how sparkly and beautiful he is is just 
amazing. And there's like a moment of surprise from Brian's side. Yeah. And, but then immediately he's like, oh yeah, yeah. She's, she shifted into my twin. That's amazing. And then <laughs> kind of just like, doesn't comment on that at all. And then the, it, it, then the comic segues into the, the anxiety around Megan having consumed alcohol and the worry about what that will do to her powers and stuff. Like it, it's, it's just the sheer unfazedness of it. And like how the, the panels that portray them have them so intimate like drawn so intimately like her hands on his shoulders they're turning towards each other they're very close in proximity she leans in it's it's fascinating uh just that little glimpse into maybe a private uh scenario they've already tried out once you know Um, i admit that i have been thinking far more than is probably productive about our conversation from excalibur number 15 in which um esther obviously wasn't here for that one um in that issue there's a scene where kurt is in female drag and he and brian have a flirty exchange um and megan often shifts into a version of kurt so there's a lot of implications here if (laughs) there's an element of shape-shifting involved in their sexual relationship i mean yeah we've seen her shift into brian before too so mm-hmm. she had this is not the first time okay you've convinced me i'm gonna like download this entire series and to finish. <laughs> i would we would certainly definitely recommend you know the the first run of it up to this point we're sort of getting into fill-in issues and then we have sort of a some not good ones after this but um anyway but there's a lot of interesting stuff in terms of that relationship and the way shape-shifting factors into it because when megan is sort of perceiving kurt's desire for her or perhaps reacting to her own desire for him she shapeshifts into a female version of him and you know it's a little bit of both maybe we're not totally sure but in terms of brian flirting with kurt in female drag and then he's seen megan in this other form before and then this element of shapeshifting here i'm just saying it's interesting is what i will say and it's definitely the most interesting that i have found brian and megan sexually um in this series up to this point i mean i'd really say that it kind of really hints at Brian being a closeted bisexual person, or at the very least a not straight person, because the the issue does so much to highlight Brian's uncertainty of himself as a man. And as we know, heterosexuality is so innately tied into, you know, our our culture's concept of masculinity, especially toxic masculinity. Right. So like the like so Brian's inability to comfortably fit into any kind of masculinity, possibly because he hasn't inside his own self like truly accepted that there are different ways to be a man than this one, you know, super masculine ideal. And so he doesn't fit comfortably into these non-super masculine masculinities that he's trying out. And then combined with this kind of, you know, possible glimpse into sexual attraction to someone who can present as not a woman yeah it kind of hints at this inability of him to accept a part of himself Mm -hmm. so there's like a there's like a a closeted atmosphere maybe to that exchange because they're in trench coats so they're in hiding there's like a cover so you could read it that way i think if you if you were invested in brian being a bit more sexually adventurous yeah, and I mean, I think that that's a really good way of put it, putting it like a closeted atmosphere at the very least, because we can at the very least say that this issue is playing with questions of gender and sexuality that evoke queerness, even if we're not necessarily going all the way. Um, Andrew, can I hear your thoughts about it? Can I hear your Megan thoughts about what happens here and sort of the importance of her role here? You've already spoken about it a little bit, but I can give you first crack on the mermaid transformation if you want to <laughs> tackle it. Uh, I think I think it makes... Um a lot of sense in juxtaposition. I, I like the idea of Megan being forced into this ultra-feminine siren role uh, and then rejecting that and becoming a werewolf and chasing them all around. 
uh, I, I think that's a nice kind of way to encapsulate the broader character arc that we see overall in this issue, uh, in which Megan is coming into her own. She's asserting her power and agency. Yeah, as I said I, at the beginning, I, I would really like it if we were more continuous with her character voice so that it felt more like Megan that we, we know before. So it would be like a little bit more, um, I guess, canonical. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think I think it works really, really well as a nice way to succinctly symbolize um, what she's achieving in this issue. I mean, do we want to comment on the symbology of mermaids in relation to sexuality? I can if nobody else wants to, but if somebody else wants to, they can. I feel like we should give you the honor of kicking off because we really want to. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I just wanted to mention, you know, sort of thematic links that are often present in literature and culture between sort of mermaids and sex and gender play in different ways. It's often, you know, both taken up sort of in stories, but also by people sort of as a metaphor for transsexuality. And I don't know that this issue would be sort of aware of that context necessarily, but it is certainly something that we could bring to the story as readers. I mean, that's really interesting in the sense that um, Cooter then like kind of inadvertently forces Megan to transform into a mermaid as a sign of desire. And you immediately see all the male characters around her immediately rush in, grab her, you know, get her, like, like this kind of extreme symbol of of desire not in in this case not explicitly sexually but certainly coded as greedy and and you know that kind of thing i think we have to add to that too that again with the juxtaposition the werewolf is a symbol of primal masculine desire right it's yes yes so again her choosing that and taking that on is to me very similar to taking on brian's shape uh in a weird way for for me the when and again, calling her cooter, there's so much about that. <laughs> I know. I had when, to say it so many to... times earlier, Matt. Yeah. When when Cooter forces that transformation on Megan, I think there's an important callback to Excalibur number six. So we've had this common thing with Megan where it's not just Kurt and Brian that she wants to be the perfect woman for, right? You know, her powers have allowed her to be the object of desire to the strongest emotions in the room, usually yeah. male male emotions of lust, right? So when she's on that boat uh, way back in Excalibur 6, she becomes this perfect, you know, sailor pinup girl because there's all these sailors basically lusting after her. And she's like, oh, I want them to like me, right? Here, she has, and this is an important step for Megan, she actively re- uh, um, rejects it. She feels it happening to herself. She acknowledges, mm-hmm. oh my God, I'm becoming a, mer- a mermaid because that's what they want me to be. No, this is not what I want. This is Megan being able to say no and assert her own agency, not just have agency, but literally make a conscious choice to assert her own agency. I, I recognize what you were saying, Andrew, about it seeing, being a little out of character for her. I'm okay with it because I've felt Megan's been, uh, we've talked about it on the last few episodes. I've had problems with her behavior for the last several issues of some Claremont, some not of her being like a little out of character, you know, ever since Fader X stories, right? So this is closer to a natural progression of where I want her to be at this point. Yeah, I actually like the transformations for her character. Yeah. I don't think that's out of character. I just think her yeah. voice in the earlier sections, she doesn't yeah. sound like Megan. It, but but on the other hand, I do like where she's doing stuff even even beyond the transformation, the physical transformation that she has from mm-hmm. you know from Cooter. I love her acknowledgement of the shoes. 
Um, <laughs> she, like, I just think that that's brilliant where she's just like, you people covering your feet, this makes no sense, but I'm going to do it so I can go on this date with you, honey. But like, <laughs> oh my God, why the hell would anybody, you know, as a person who does not particularly enjoy wearing shoes himself, um, I, I wander around my, about, around my home barefoot. You know, it's just, the first thing I do when I get home is take off my shoes, shoes and socks. I wear shoes when I leave my home. That's it. So since this is, this is completely unnatural and foreign to her, I like the acknowledgement of it. And I think that's a metaphor for her fitting it, for her fitting in. I think it gets a little problematic later, which I want to not get to yet. But um, but I like that she's acknowledging her place in the world and she's aware of her own otherness in a way that she has not been up until this point. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, do we want to talk about our villain duo here and what they're kind of doing for us in this story mm-hmm. and <laughs> whether we like them or think that they're meaningful? I mean, they are like villain of the week villains. They're here to serve a purpose. But um, I mean, one of the things I find her interesting about, interesting about her as a villain in this comic is the way that we do get the contrast of like a male and female duo sort of fighting a male and female duo. And that sort of furthers some of the themes of the comic. And I like the ways that Cooter is similar but different to Megan. You know, they're both beautiful blondes, but Megan is like a taller, more athletic blonde. She's got more of a honey blonde hair. Cooter is a platinum blonde, right? And like Cooter is in like the mini skirt costume, you know, very sort of hyper feminized in her presentation whereas we have megan who's upset at the fact that she even has to wear slippers right no i was just gonna say i I then find it interesting that cooter like very much presents a false transformation like a false vision whereas megan's transformation is real she can maintain it it's substantial so the transformation that that megan provides uh, is not an illusion, unlike unlike Cooter, who is like very. It's almost like a city of like a, a fakeness to her femininity because she's this kind of like the fake power. The power is about fakeness in a way. Um. So yeah, I just thought that was really interesting. That kind of juxtaposition of Megan as the hero, substantial, real, um, and Cooter as the villain, which is fake and flighty and just illusory. Yeah, and I mean, I often have issues with female superheroes fighting sort of female villains in the sense that it can be this performance of this is how you do strong femininity or femaleness correctly and this is how you do it incorrectly and you know women fighting each other can be unproductive on that level sort of any kind of minority or minoritized superhero often has that problem you know if you're going to have Luke Cage like fighting other black guys in Harlem it's like this is good blackness and this is bad blackness and it can kind of (laughs) reduce to that which is not my favorite thing I don't think it's anybody's favorite thing but um but I don't think we're kind of getting that here i think there's enough complexity to it that i don't think it's necessarily reducible to that and then cooter's sympathetic too she's fun i'm like i want i'm rooting for her to succeed i certainly don't want the like cops to succeed because they're terrible like i'm happy that she gets away at the end other thoughts from andrew or mav about our villains here I think a lot of this is served by the fact that you know we, we talk about artists on this show and frequently our talk about Alec artists is, well, they're not Alan Davis. Alan Davis would have done this better. Um, I'm not doing that here. Um, talk, talk about Colleen Doran because she's really Colleen interesting. Colleen Doran is wonderful here. This is great. And, in, and not in a 
I've I've said before, for instance, I'm a big Ron Lim fan, and and my my review of him, of him on this show has often been, oh, he's fine, he's doing the best with what he's got. Um, <laughs> and when I'm a big Marshall Rogers fan, I'm like, ooh, not his best work. Here, I like what Colleen's doing. I like what I like Colleen Duran being mixed with Brett Blevins. It doesn't look like either of their artwork. It creates this wonderful like sort of mesh of it together. And I think that how she draws Cooter and Bash makes them fun she's not trying to be alan davis she's not just trying to fit in i don't think austin's trying to be chris claremont either they've done their own story that works for the story that it wants to be and it's like i would i would follow this creative team i would follow these stories elsewhere i'm not going to because they're this is the one you know but 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 i would but i would be interested in how these um this team tells a story so i think that made it fun i i I think i think she draws um two hyper femme characters in different ways to show you that there are different versions of what hyper femme sexiness can be Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and both of them are okay i I feel as though both of them are sexy i don't feel as though either of them are needlessly objectified i mean sexiness is objectification in some in some sense right so Mm -hmm. she's doing a thing but i also feel that way i mean i talked about my sympathy for brian in this a lot of my sympathy for brian comes from the way that she portrays them so i think a lot of me me liking cooter and and bash is you know bash has like what three lines in this entire thing and i like him too you know (laughs) and i think a lot of that is just through the visuals of this one appearance that they've had where they're just portrayed as fun villains of the week. I mean, there's a softness and a friendliness to her style that I really like, which I'm hesitant to use those words because that sounds like I'm like typifying her as like a female artist or something, which I am not trying to do. But I just, I think that the tone that like she's bringing to this comic, and I mean, it is sort of working with Blevins because I think you can see that a little bit. This is some of like Doran's um, very early comic book work and her style will kind of develop in different ways moving forward. Like she's a really interesting artist. Like one of her first projects was like working on the revival of Miss Fury, who is, you know, one of the first, you know, female action heroes, superheroes created by a woman in Tarpe Mills. She was involved in a really interesting uh, (laughs) like scandal sort of at Marvel in the 1980s where Marvel's adult line was sort of like attacked for obscenity and that was actually her first Marvel job so that Mm -hmm. sounds like I'm linking her to sort of you know adult content and that's not necessarily her brand but she has a very interesting career though and people if you're interested people should people should look up her Wonder Woman work and her Sandman work um Mm -hmm. she's also done I think she did Legion Superheroes for a while she she might have done Teen Titans she's the yeah um, she did Yeah, she is a much more intricate artist. Um, She's very detail-oriented in a way at which, this sounds like an insult, it's not intended to be, in a way at which um, Blevins is simplifying her here in a way that works really well. Me seeing the two, I can see so much influence from both of them in this particular comic. She is very detail-oriented in a way that he's much more cartoony, and I think they work really well together. I think the one of the skills that she really demonstrates, um, like in the first half, I'm struck by how good her facial expressions are. Mm-hmm. In the second half, I'm struck by her timing and her ability to um, create a sense of space in an action sequence that takes place entirely in a pub, which is not at all easy uh, and makes that space work and feel dramatic and kinetic in a way that I think is you know really impressive. And as much as we always lament oh, I wish Alan Davis was here to do that or Alan Davis could have done that better. I think the timing in the back half of the issue is right on par with some of the this stuff. This feels written for Davis. her. It feels written for her. As yeah, that's to, what oh, I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that is just, it's such a good merging, I think, of what the content of this issue is. The style serves it really, really, really well. Like, exactly the opposite of what we talked about with a number of the Wozniak issues, which we talked about recently, <laughs> which the style mm -hmm. really was not serving the story being told. This is the opposite of that. I hope he doesn't listen to our pod. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, we were. I feel like we were very like he's done better work elsewhere and just not a good fit for this book. I don't think like we went that hard on him, honestly. He'd probably agree. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure he's heard worse. Like, there's definitely someone going out there going, "He was horrible." <laughs> I'm let's, sure there's like someone sending him like hate mail about how he ruined their childhood by drawing Excalibur. Last issue was drawn by two of my favorite artists, and I hate it. So <laughs> 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 they're two of my all-time favorite artists, and I just think it's awful. So I think that the fact that this is written for her, presumably, I mean, it feels so refreshing and joyous in a way i mean it's a very simple story but it feels delightful and it's the kind of thing where I, like i said i would follow this forever if this were you know the first issue in an all new in an all new direction for excalibur i would have been like oh i'm sad to see the team go but okay you know like i want to see where this goes it feels so fun i enjoy what happens i enjoyed the villains i enjoyed the artwork i enjoyed the character development like this mm -hmm. feels like such a like a real story yeah i think this is what a good villain should be flesh out the world a little bit I was so worried that you guys were going to be all really negative on this and talk me out of it. Instead, I'm coming away liking this issue even more than I did at the start of the podcast. So, no, okay. I feel like it feels a little self-indulgent, but in like the best way. Like, yeah, yeah like it's just really fun and lighthearted and also kind of, yeah, like spicy and exciting and like, ooh, what else is going on here? Um yeah, I like. I guess we should do final thoughts because and I'll, I'll give the final word to to Esther. But I'm gonna do my two final thoughts first, which is that we didn't talk about the little aerial flirting scene with Megan and Brian at the beginning, which I mostly enjoyed. I have gripes always about sort of how superhero romance is handled in pretty much every comic, because I always want it to be better. But I thought that this was mostly successful. I like the fact that they were sort of playing with each other in a way that felt safe because of the nature of their powers and. I don't know. I was like good with it. It wasn't like life changing or anything, but I was like, this was cute. Um, and my second thing is, even though Kurt shows up only in one panel, I have to mention something about it, <laughs> which is that yeah. just like given the context of this issue and so much of the sex and gender play that was going on here. And I mean, talking about some of the queer coding of this issue as well. I just like it did make me yearn for this being I don't know, a more polyamorous relationship possibly where like Megan could have everything that she wants and not have to choose between these two men and just having Kurt pop up in this space just made me be like, oh, maybe we could have that. It's your OT3, isn't it? <laughs> <I don't even laughs> I'd be intrigued to read that story. I'm not sure if it's the story that I would write or not, but I would definitely, definitely read it. I thought you would talk about it more because um, I, I that also meant something to me. And I said, I said I wanted to talk a little more about, about Megan later because this is the first, this is Megan directly acknowledging, uh, even though she didn't want to, she's mm -hmm. acknowledging that she's into Kurt. You know, mm -hmm. a couple of issues ago, we implied that maybe they had a physical affair as well. This is literally her saying, oh, I'm thinking, ooh, I, I didn't mean to think there, but I'm just, you know, it's her noticing this in a way that I think, much like Brian acknowledging his drinking problem, I think Megan acknowledging that she's into Kurt is important. And I wish there were more of it than just one panel. 
because I think that's an important beat that in other aspects of the, of their relationship, it's always felt very much like, well, Kurt wants her. We don't know that she wants him. No, she wants him and she's not, and he's not there. So she's not just reacting to, you know, her emotional empath uh, abilities because of proximity. She is thinking about him when he's not around. And I think that matters. That really matters. And I'm so glad you brought it up because I totally mm-hmm. would have missed mentioning that. But that is completely why that matters. Like to see that- her independently expressing the agency to desire Kurt is extremely, extremely important. And it actually mm-hmm. is the only definitive moment in which we see it. Yeah. My um my actual, you know, final thought that I just wanted to cover though is with Megan's shapeshifting powers, there's a weirdness to how complete they are that like always weirds me out. Megan's clothes change when she shapeshifts, mm. except for when the story is served for them not to. And I think the story is very much served for them not to, because we need to understand that as exhibitionistic as Megan can be, Megan wanders around her, 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 her home in a bikini pretty much constantly. That's just her regular clothes. Um, she has limits. She's willing to fly all the way back home, tugging on you know her now <laughs> skirt, her ripped pants, you know, so she's not showing her genitals while she flies. Forgetting the fact that you know she could shape shift into a form where there's where they're not there because we've seen her do that, and she can normally shape shift her clothes. I don't know why she can't here, other than the fact that we need to show that she's embarrassed by it. So it's a weird move, but I appreciate Duran showing us that she that this Megan has limits. She's not just going to wander, you know, fly around naked in the sky. Yeah, and I mean, I had various thoughts about how it worked in the Brian transformation scene when she transforms into Brian because we've we've had that before, like her transforming into Brian or other male characters while she's still wearing her sexy costume. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I do like that visual in terms of, some, again, some of the gender play or queerness that's happening there, but it's hard to read how much that's like intentional or like whether they just wanted that visual so they had to go with that nature of yeah anyway but i agree with you mm-hmm. it doesn't really make sense it's a yeah. little bit it's her a costume bit changes all the time when she needs it to mm-hmm. like she mm-hmm. she's two issues ago she changed her costume into black queen um mm-hmm. lingerie at the snap of a finger she can do this mm-hmm. if she wants to so it's weird but <laughs> andrew any final thoughts from you uh, just kind of the obvious. I think it's nice to see Megan happy and self-assured. I, th- I think we need oh. that now and again. Um, if we're going to continue you know, giving us something for that character to fight toward as she goes through all of this misery and uncertainty and despair that she encounters on the regular. Are you giving it a qualified stamp of approval as as Megan's <laughs> PR manager? Yes, <laughs> definitely. No, I, I think this is a good issue. And I think just the challenge of let's write an issue about Megan and C- Captain Britain hanging out at a pub. And it's not bad. That that's that's good. <laughs> <laughs> They're definitely bucking the odds there. <laughs> Esther, I will give you the final word if you would like it. Oh no, I don't want to go last, but I'll go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I just I think um, we've not really talked about the cover uh, of mm. the of the the issue, which I think I really quite like, especially in the sense that the the whole feeling of the issue is very fun-loving and kind of a bit more campy or hammy than usual, because you've got, you know, Brian and Bash having a go at it, you've got Megan transformed into the mermaid uh, on it, but most especially, you have Cooter, like, pointing at Megan with her thumb and winking at the reader, um, which I just think is a really nice touch, especially in light of how you've described Cooter as, as like, a fun villain, uh, Anna. So, yeah, I thought that was a, a really kind of, like, a nice foreshadowing bit at how zany the issue was going to be. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of... And I don't, I don't know if this... Um, is is there any 
way worth mentioning. But I kind of like the name of the pub, The Gilded Lady, because <laughs> um, <laughs> it kind of thematically ties into Cooter, uh, which very obviously mm. because she presents the rocks as gold, etc. But also in like a really strange way, Brian himself, maybe it's it's her it's her funeral and maybe he's kind of being disillusioned with who he thought he was because, you know, he's not being recognized. He's having this toss up with the lemonade, um, but also gilded as this kind of idea of like, you know, it's not real gold. Um, there's something else underneath. So it's the the nice pretty boy can't go home again to the gilded lady. But is he the gilded lady? Do you see? So, yeah, I thought I just thought that was like a an, an odd, nice thematic touch. Uh, the gilded lady. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I'm so glad you brought it up because, yeah, I'm thinking of like gilded cages now and the fact that like the three central players in this comic are all blondes and like the ways that, you yeah. know, that is so good. That was a perfect final thought. Staying. There's a meeting of the round table. No, I can't. So I think we will wrap up there. I'm just like in such a good mood now. I was so convinced everyone was going to try to talk me out of this issue. And instead, I just like want to go and read it again. Um, so no, I Esther. I like bully you. <laughs> well no no it's just like i feel like i have like in my mind when we did the first higgins limb issue and i was kind of ready to go in and have a fun conversation and then like we went really <laughs> hard on that issue and yeah i know and i'm like i totally understand why but i'm happy that the outcome of this one which is objectively a much better issue um turned out a little sunnier so esther we've already mentioned some of your fabulous work relevant to the podcast but that was a whole hour ago so remind everybody again if you would like people to find you online where can they find you and what work of yours should people check out um so if you really want to like follow me online or anything um i am available uh, on twitter just under my name at esther Dadell. and my books you can buy um on the waterstones website um, you, you can, I, I hate plugging Amazon, but uh, you can find them on Amazon. Um, the books are Hot Pants and Spandex Suits, Amer uh, Gender in American Superhero Comic Books, and Toxic Masculinity, Mapping the Monstrous in Our Hero, which I did with our co-editor, um, Daniel J. Connell. And I also have, um, for those of you who might be interested in graphic medicine, I also have a comic book um, that I edited called Missing Panels. And if you would like a free digital issue, uh, just email me at missingpanels at gmail.com. Excellent. Yeah, we will link all of those things on our website and I will be contacting you about that. Sounds super interesting. So thank you so much again for joining us, Esther. I loved this conversation so much. No, thank you so, so much for having me. It's been really, really fun. Always happy to hear that. Next, in one week's time, we will be on to episode 30 in which we will be discussing Excalibur number 29, Dream a Little Dream, in which... Lots of things happen, many of them not quite as fun as this issue. So Alex Power is there, and he's a ghost horse, along with Nightmare, and yeah, we'll talk about it, um, with an old friend of ours that we're very excited to have on the podcast. So it should be a lots of fun anyway. Excalibur number 29 is another non-Claremont fill-in issue. We won't get back to Claremont penned issues until the girls' school from Hex storyline starts up in Excalibur 32. But all of that's in the future. For now, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous 
fabulous YouTube videos, which you can find via our website or the Box Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another raucous conversation. Thank you, Esther, for lending us your sober acumen. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out.